If that common sense making is premised on what's in it for me, or how do I get ahead, or what's the solution, these deep assumptions of control, then those ghosts are going to guide everything we do. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we learn from Nora Bateson. Nora is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and educator, and president of the International Bateson Institute. She wrote, directed, and produced the documentary An Ecology of Mine on her father, Gregory Bateson, which won awards at the Spokane and Santa Cruz Film Festivals. Following her 2016 book, Small Arcs of Larger Circles, her new book, Combining, will be released shortly. In this episode, we talk about a very wide range of things, including ecology, increasing possibility, warm data, intergenerational learning, and much more. It's a fascinating episode. So please stand by to learn from Nora Bateson. Nora, it's a pleasure and privilege to have you on the show. Thanks. It's really good to be here. So one word which has been a very common one through you and your family's work is ecology. And I think people come with this idea of ecology, which only captures a fragment of the way in which you mean it. So I think that'd be a lovely starting point is for you to frame this idea of ecology and this idea of uh, an ecology of mind or ecology of of mind and nature. Yeah. Well, thank you. Because I think this new book that I have just published called Combining is called Combining because of exactly what you're saying. And And I think one of the things that happens in a world that is looking for the code, the hack, the model, is that this idea of ecology becomes somehow static. And it it isn't. And the trick to actually thinking in ecological ways is to recognize that this there is an ongoing movement and ongoing responsiveness between um, all of the organisms in a in an ecology. And that those organisms are in fact mutually learning to be together, which means that there is the continuation of whatever it is, 
the species, the meadow, the forest, the oceans. And that continuation means that some of the relationships need to be in continuing patterns. But in order to do that, there must be discontinuing because of all the other change and responsiveness that's taking place. So very often, I think one of the things that happens in in just sort of the nonverbal assumption of the noun ecology is that there is this set of relationships that create a functional vitality. And I would say, let's get rid of that word functional and even be careful with vitality that we keep it into vitalizing, that it's ongoing. And, and it's this ongoingness that is tricky because it's so nth order. It's never just one organism. It's all the organisms in a context and, and beyond. So, you know, our habit is to identify a tree as a tree and say that tree has, is treeing. But that tree is only possible because of millions of organisms, trillions maybe, that are in ongoing, shifting, responding, relational communication. So life is not, uh, is not something which stands alone. It is always in relationship to others. And so the relationships is, is the heart of what that ecology is. Is that right? Well, but what makes relationships? And this is where I, I find the field of biosemiotics interesting because they, they actually don't refer to the biosphere, they refer to the semiosphere, which is recognizing that relationships are made in communication. And so it's in the communication between various between all the organisms. And you may think that communication is just signal and response, but communication is also there in the, the, the way that the nutrients for trees are moving through mycelial processes or the way bacteria poop and make it possible for trees to grow. These are all communicative processes. So what is What's possible in the communication? What's being communicated? What's possible in the communication? And so, um, you know, working with human systems, the tendency then would be to say, okay, we've got to fix the communication. What we have is, what we have is a failure to communicate, right? But that tends to push the attention then to what's on the transcript. And what's on the transcript is not what happened in the communication. So this is, you know, I think a good way of pointing to those areas where systems change is most needed and most elusive because you can't actually point to it. So what I'm getting at is that there are ways in which we are in communication that are defined by various limits of what we can communicate. And those limits are not directly expressed. 
they're implied. They're in the meta messaging of the context. They're in the they're in the um, they're in the tacit understanding, the complicit recognition of context that we share. So the limits to to how richly, how deeply, how much we can communicate. We can say, or even who we can be, right? So with some people, you are different, right? You're you're really funny, and you're the slacker, and you're the cool dude. And with other people, you're the nerd. And with somebody else, you're the grown up. You're the old person. And with another person, you're the you're the apprentice. So who are you? And the way you are with some friends is is evokes the possibility of just being in in your whole self in another way. So when you walk into the tax office, who can you be? When you are with your best friend, maybe at the pub, who can you be? When you're in the woods, who can you be? So it's this recognition that our relationship changes communication. Communication changes relationship. So where are those limits? Because I, what I see as sort of the issue kind of most deeply um, creating stuckness is the way in which um, just as people, we are keeping each other stuck in the same pattern. So we can run around talking about transformation and systems change and how we're going to change the parts of the system or we're going to change the scripts or change the relationships. But actually, one of the biggest sticking points is how we hold each other in, in the way we value each other, the way we think about credibility, lovability, you know, sexual attractiveness, etc. These these processes are actually located in physiological ways in our communication. So we're sticking each other in the very thing that we're working to change. One of the beautiful phrases in your book is I shall always act to increase possibility and I, and I think that's a little bit you know, the, the, you're describing some of the ways in which we are constrained in who we are, who we could be, our relationships. And I think a very, you know, very pointed question is, what are the things that we can do to increase our possibilities? I'm so glad you asked because it's, this is, um, you know, when you're trying to approach these processes that are taking place, not necessarily at first order, at the first level where you might point to a symptom and say, okay, there's the issue, we have to solve that issue. But in this way in which we're looking at nth order, so the relationships that make relationships that make relationships that make relationships, the communication that makes communication that makes communication, and as I was just saying, a lot of this stuff is tacit. It's implied. It's metacommunication. It's living in a realm that's very real, but very slippery. It's gaseous. It's like it's hard to grab hold of it. And, you know, you, it's not like changing the distributor cap in your pickup truck. You know, changing the possibility of communication 
means another thing. So this for me is where warm data has been um, really exciting um, because after many years of working with various sorts of systems change and various kinds of modelings and this is and that's and, and also coming from my own history, which I guess we'll get to in a minute. So, so could you explain warm, warm data as a, as a concept? I, yeah. So warm data as a concept, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. So warm data as a thing is information, um, but it's a way of recognizing information that's taking place between multiple contexts. So it's trans-contextual information. All right. So in that example of who is Ross, who is Ross um, in relationship to your microbiome, in relationship to the, the tax agency, in relationship to your lover, in relationship to children, if you have any, or your dogs, or your childhood friends, or your professional relationships, or your um, your parents, your ancestors, the grandchildren that are not here yet, the great-great-grandchildren to be who are you. And in each one of those contexts, you are not the same so who are you? And and so there's this way of recognizing that information moves in different contexts. And this is um, a necessary practice of perceiving complex systems. Um, and another way to describe warm data is that it's information that's alive. So I could put you in a box and I could say, oh, Ross, you know, he's got a podcast. But that would be a huge reductionism of who you are. And it's not that it's untrue that you have a podcast. And I could study all your podcasts, but I would still know very little about you. I could deduct and I could, you know, sort of make correlations and I could do this and that, but I will not have a sense of your vitality from that. Um, so, so my suspicion is that... Uh, because there's basically so much information missing that many of the responses that are attempted are responses to reductionist information, information that's been decontextualized from its living processes and recontextualized into a mechanistic, more industrialized set of understandings. So... How do we actually respond to a living world if our information is not itself alive? Question. And that's kind of at the core of what warm data as, a, as an idea is about. The warm data lab is a process that I work with, with groups of people in practicing this perception. Um, it's a practice. And, and a practice in which the the transcontextual perception and cognition, you're interested in cognition, is able to shift in ways that are not necessarily explicit. So it's recognizing that many of the things that are blocking us epistemologically are things that are habits that we don't even know we're doing. Ghosts of industrial assumptions that are so deeply lodged in our language in the way we went to school, in our understanding of how you define something or strategize something or solve something or even identify a problem, that, that these capacities 
are infected with ghosts of of industrial eugenics, um, control, mechanistic mm. ideas, etc., colonial notions of that that these notions will justify exploitation, decontextualization, devitalization, and and take out the possibility. Okay, so where where I'm saying I want to always act to increase possibility, what I'm really saying is I want to be able to perceive those possibilities that the complexity in the process brings that may not be the ones I think I'm looking for. That's the catch. So so with warm data, so that, you know, there was there used to be a lot of talk about data, information, knowledge, wisdom. And I suppose very crudely, you could say that data and information are things that can be digitized or captured in some forms, and knowledge and wisdom, presumably not. <laughs> and so the so the question is, is the warm data which you talk about, can that only be understood in our thinking, in our living, in our communication? Or is there any way to be able to, to capture and, well, Obviously, that means makes it static. But is there any way to to be beyond or something which becomes part of a describable system? It depends on what you mean by describable. So, um, if you try to define it, okay. So let's say you walk into a room. All right. Now, just in the walking into that room without recognizing you're doing it, you will be attending with your attention to the temperature, to the smells, to the, 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 the atmosphere of the space and what the atmosphere allows you to be, okay? Is this a cozy bohemian space? Is it a, a rigid, a sterile hospital place? Is it an algebra room? Is it a you know, are we stepping into a um, a classroom that is um, full of art supplies? Who are you going to be in that space? Okay, so this is information that is. I think it's it's in your in those two versions you gave. It's neither, right? It's neither wisdom nor is it. Are they data points? Um, it's living processing, and it has to do with all the other places you've ever been and all the other ways you've ever been and who you're there with, et cetera. So how do you capture warm data? Well, capture is, I would say, why don't we say express instead or or, yep. or make room for it? And so that's what I have done in combining is that I've put in all these pieces um, of writing and artwork and different ways of expressing and perceiving and just put them next to each other and given the reader the opportunity to m- make the connections. Yes. So that those connections, this book is full of poetry and it's got, you know, 30 page essays that are pretty crunchy theory and there's stories and there's all kinds of artwork and and I would say the book is not in any of the pieces. It's in what you create between them. You can start anywhere and let them speak to each other through you. You see, there 
I'm making room for this living information to take place. Very quick break to point you to AmplifyingCognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thoughtweaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. So we were chatting before about the idea of systemic change, and it's part of the the framing for me is that you know, your father, Gregory Bateson, is one of the most influential people in my life, right. in uh, my early reading and thinking. Me and, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the, the things that we were talking about was uh, intergenerational learning. As the and when you're describing all of the ways in which we communicate and learn and relate, I mean, one of the very important ones is through generations, both you know of a particular family and also from all of you know humanity or living living beings. So, so what? How is it that we can manifest in a, a intergenerational learning? Yeah. Well, this one I think is. One of the places that is um, most important to be paying attention to. And uh, for all my friends out there who are systems thinkers, it's one thing to be able to do it in the office and it's another thing to do it at the breakfast table. And that this is not just a professional approach to somehow creating policy change. This is a complete life change that starts with how it's possible to be in mutual learning across generations. Um, And that's not easy. And it's really in those moments when you start to see these assumptions come into play in ways that can be quite painful and confusing and filled with resentment or, um, you know, anger or or even attachment in ways that are are somehow twisted up. Um, but I think probably one of the most important recognitions for me has been um, the way in which my father, who um, was one of the people who helped bring systemic theory into the world through cybernetics and his work in multiple... Absolutely. Um, different fields, um, the way he was with me when I was little. And when he, he was six foot six, so two meters, and a a larger than life character of science and charisma. And um, people came from all over to sort of sit at his feet. And so, and I was born when he was quite old. He was 64 when I was born. Wow. And people would ask me, didn't you feel insignificant with all these people focusing on your father? And and the answer is no, I didn't because I was always welcome in that conversation. And I I knew that I was welcome because when all the people were gone, the conversation still included me in the same way. And he 
would do these things where he would invite me to perceive his learning. So if he was doing something in a day and he noticed something he hadn't noticed before, he would verbalize that for me. I noticed this thing for the first time today. And I used to think it was like this, but now I see that there's a difference. And sometimes it was with me and he would say, oh gosh, I was wrong about that. And so what what was important was that I knew what it looked like to be in an intergenerational relationship that where there was learning. And so often you get these this sense that authority or elder generations have this field around them in which they must not be questioned and they must not be wrong. Even if they're wrong, they're not wrong. And, and that was simply not the case. In our household, there was no currency of being right. The currency was around learning together. And so um, that changed how we could be together. And, you know, it did not make any holes in my respect for him. On the contrary, it meant that I, I, my respect for him is, well, I'm still working with his work. So I guess I don't need to say any more about that. But what I learned was one, what it looks like to learn. Two, I learned to learn. And Three, I learned to be in a relationship intergenerationally in which that was possible so that I could repeat that with my kids. And um, I want to read you a piece from my book that I think illustrates this and illustrates the urgency of it. Because, um, you know, when we're talking about what's it possible to say, who is it possible to be? what's in the ecology of communication between us, which is really where the possibility is. It's in there. So, so this is a piece that I wrote for my kids. And it's, it's the why of why the rest of this book is about possibility. So it's called Mama Now. Your eyes will see the derailing of assumptions. Your hands will hold the crumble of the old matrix. I do not have any authority to lean into. I have empty pockets where parents used to advise their children. I don't have any maps, myths, or mother wisdom for you. I can fix your breakfast, but not the culture. And when you ask about how to be a good person, I cannot lie to you. Everything you touch in a day is in some way bloodied. You've been born into an edgeless violence. But I will not judge or measure you against a bygone metric. I am here, too, ready to learn with you, unsure how to be or who to be. I can only read fragments of your worry as the future is a horizon of confusion, I cannot protect you. And yet it is my only job. Aching as I witness from this side of the hourglass, other generations of parents' new outlines, school, career, family, and retirement, 
but your life will be another shape entirely forming in the fractures. When you say you need a goal, I offer you an expired ticket. Superficial memes roll off the tongue right into your bullshit detector. Success in the existing system is not going to do you much good. Your integrity is your rage, and I will nourish it. Your dignity is your curiosity, and I am tiny beside it. Your courage is your pain, and I will sing to it with you. We will riot together. We will notice the nuance of small graces in the day. We will wash the grit of loss for each other. I am your mama, and your future is the story of a storm. I am your cabin, your boots, your rucksack. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I think there's a lot there about the, who we could be, who we can be, who we are, and which, which goes to our today, in a sense. And so you know, I, I, I would, if I was asked to name wise people, I would uh, mention your father. And so you are part of that intergenerational learning here today. So today, which is a world, I think, more complex, more uh, challenging in many ways than uh, the world of last century. So what in terms of changing the systems in which we live, of which we are part of, what are some of the lessons that you know, we should be taking into account to change the systems of today, drawing on this wisdom from across generations. Across generations, across cultures. I mean, this is this is ways of knowing that I think indigenous people have had from all over the world since forever. So um, in my family, this has been entering into the, you know, the scientific academy of um of that way of knowing um and for me i think the the lesson of the last couple of years that's been most profound um has been in recognizing that if if the premises of our uh let's say common sense not as in that practical thing but as in the sense that making that we do that is common between us. Um, if that common sense making is premised on what's in it for me, or how do I get ahead, or what's the solution, or these, these deep assumptions of control, then those ghosts are going to guide everything we do. And one of the ways that you will see that is in how you raise your kids or how you treat your elders or or what is in that intergenerational um, soil. What can grow there? What can't grow there? And I think we're, our, one of the challenges in this moment is to really, for lack of a better term, but 
tend to that soil where, I mean, this is where evolution happens, right? Is in between the generations. So we're, we're running all over creation, trying to make all this externalized structural shift and keeping in place those assumptions that reproduce the same structural possibilities. Um, so if that, if the basis of that common sense is, is symbiosis and the difficulty of symbiosis and what that means to partake in communication with your child that is not just about, you know, get your shoes on, it's cold outside, but extends into relationships that make relationships that make relationships, recognizing that everything you do is taking place at end order. Not not just first, you cannot just draw your line of responsibility at the edge of first order action. It's it's far beyond that. So so for me, that's the big one of of tending. Um, and you might say, oh, that's impossible, but you know, it isn't really. It isn't really. What what it takes is an acute uh, and vigilant attention to the ghosts that are trying to sneak out. Um, and that's uncomfortable because they're they're locked in strategy, control, and and the things that we are all commended for um, in the world that we live in. What did you produce? What did you achieve? How do you measure it? How do you define it? And the thing that we're talking about should by every expression be outside of those means of description. Yes. And so this comes back to today, creating more possibilities for us and uh, the, the life in which we're, we're embedded. So you have a new book coming out. Uh, so tell us about the book and where uh, people can uh, get it or find out more about it. Mm, yeah, the book is called Combining. And um, it's, it's really an exploration of this idea of ecology of communication and possibility and, and really making some pages between which this, I mean, I think possibility right now is probably the most precious expression of life that we've got to work with. And especially when you look at all of the double binds that we, we can get into that another time, I think, but there's a whole chapter on that, um, of war, of the ecological crises, economic crises, cultural crises, the poly crises that we are in, um, Looking backward at how these things came to be, it can feel very impossible to come up with a solution or a way forward. The impossibilities are ringing so loud right now. So I I took the opportunity in this book to make space where the weirdness, the unexpectedness, the detours, the the living composting um you know moldy green fur of possibility can emerge um and 
it's amazing that it actually got published because it does. <laughs> this book is not about what it's about. It's a it what it is is what it becomes for you, and it will be available in all the usual sort of haunts online um, within the next few weeks. I, I think pretty much all over the world, and. Um, I really hope you enjoy it. There's entire chapters with nothing but pictures. And there's lots of. Well, I've read uh, an excerpt, and it's uh, beautiful, both visually and in terms of the richness of the tapestry of ideas and relationships in there. So it's uh, very, it's an, uh, something to dive deep into. And just to quickly round out, uh, I, I think the probably other major reference, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, would be the Bateson Institute, just to say what that does and uh, how to find that. So the International Bateson Institute is located here in Stockholm, and we do all sorts of things. Um, we are working with uh, school systems around the world. We're working with um, various nature programs. We host the warm data work around the world. I think there's 800 plus warm data hosts out there doing that now in all sorts of places. Um, as well as uh, various research projects and so on. So all, all based on this idea of transcontextual process and um, essentially ecology, but but not in the um, not in the easy sense of the word. <laughs> Never easy. <laughs> Never easy. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and your insights, uh, Nora. We'll have all of the links to that and much more in the show notes. So uh, congratulations on the book. It's it's a wonderful contribution. And thank, thank you. you for you and all of your work and that of the people around you uh, because uh, the ways of perceiving uh, I think are fundamental to getting the system change that we need today. Mm -hmm. That's that's the tricky bit is is where perception shifts. You know, we're used to seeing the familiar, and um, it's difficult to see unfamiliar things to perceive that which has not been perceived before. It's tricky because you don't have receivers for it. It's a journey. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day.